We're continuing this morning in the little letter of 1 John that Pastor Steve started last week, covering a bit of the same ground, but also moving a bit more forward. Um, as, he, as he mentioned last week, we don't have that much information in the letter about the setting itself, the audience, the author, uh, those kind of details. But early and consistent church tradition links this letter to the Apostle John, of course, along with Second and Third John, the Gospel of John in the book of Revelation. And we don't have any reason, I don't think, to doubt those traditions. And it seems to be confirmed by the way that he wrote and uh, by the, the themes that he considered. This letter was probably written to a cluster of churches um, near the end of the first century. So these, you know, the 80s, 90s, something like that. The occasion for the letter seems to revolve around these false and heretical teachings and teachers that were seeking to influence these churches. And uh, chapter 2, verse 19 tells us that a faction of those had left, but they were still seeking to draw each others away. They were still seeking to, um, to deceive them from John's perspective. And so he's writing to um, not address the false teachers directly, but he's writing to encourage and reassure the church of the truth. And there's some evidence that John knew his audience pretty well. You know, he calls them his beloved. He calls them my children. And uh, he also speaks in pronoun with them. He's the, part of we. He's part of us as he addresses his congregation. Finally, it's important to mention, as Pastor Steve mentioned clearly last week, that John is writing as an eyewitness. He's speaking from his own personal experience about Jesus. He begins the book that way, that he's drawing on what Jesus actually taught him in order to give accurate testimony of what's true. And those, those first few verses there describe John's personal experience with Jesus and how that is what has changed his life and made him write this letter to these churches. So turn with me, 1 John chapter 1. It's on page 862 if you're using a pew Bible. And there's a sermon outline, of course, in the bulletin. <clears throat> Let's read it together. Um, verse 5, chapter 1. This is the message we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. If we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. If we claim we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar and his word has no place in our lives. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Please pray with me. Father, as we come to your word, we, are, we want to come as people who have need of it and who need to learn from it, as people who have been changed by it and need to be changed by it. And we ask that you would speak to your people this morning. You would remind us of what's true and you would encourage our hearts. And we pray it. In Jesus' name, amen. Our passage this morning is about sin and about how these false teachers at the time of the letter were minimizing sin or denying the fact of its consequences. 
And as you think about it, what a relevant message for us and for our culture today. On the one hand, in our culture today, sin has become sort of an unfashionable word. It's really used only in religious circles with any seriousness. You know, no one outside of those who are connected with faith somehow would talk about something being sin or not sin. You know, it's kind of like righteousness. It's a churchy word that, that doesn't have any context in our culture in a, in a positive way. Or, and even worse, sin has become something of a descriptor of something like a guilty pleasure, right? This sinfully delicious chocolate, for instance, right? This adds to the temptation and makes those who resist its lures seem kind of silly, right? You don't want to be, you don't want to be stuffy. You don't want to be, you know, holier than thou. It's just chocolate, right? But it's sinfully delicious chocolate, right? So this word that we think is very important and that the Bible speaks about, that we take seriously, this thing that Jesus died to save people from, is used in our culture in this sort of marketing way to make us want to give into it, right? To make us want to uh, participate in this or enjoy it. Sin is a word that has lost its power. And we need to think about how to communicate the idea of it clearly. Because the biblical picture is that sin is the word that describes everything about how things are not the way they're supposed to be. I'm reading a book in which the author's chapter on sin is entitled, The Crack in Everything. As he looks at the world and tries to describe it from a post-Christian perspective, he's, that's how to describe it. It's the crack in everything. It's the way that everything is broken. As we get to our passage, we see that the biblical doctrine about sin, though, derives first from, a foundational, from having a foundational understanding of who God is really is in chapter and verse 5. This is the message that we've heard from him and declare to you. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Speaking as one who heard this directly from Jesus, John teaches that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. And we don't have record of Jesus saying this exact phrase in the Gospels, but of course it certainly fits with all that Jesus taught about the nature of God, that God is holy, that God is righteous, that God is perfect in all of his ways, that there are no imperfections in God. There's no darkness. There's no sin. There's nothing that's missing or broken or wrong. And John, in this verse in the Greek, states it with a double negative, literally that God is light and there is no, not any, darkness in him. For us who believe, this isn't perhaps surprising, but think with me a bit about it. Foundationally, at the bedrock of any true description of the reality of the universe, comes this truth about the nature of God. Before the physical universe was the Creator, and there's no darkness in Him. The first lie that was told to humans was that there is something shady in God. Some kind of selfishness. A sense that he's withholding something good from us. A sense that he's being just a tiny bit of a bully or a killjoy. 
or a bit uptight about the rules, or a bit less than benevolent ruler. Right? That seed of doubt then has been multiplied out all throughout human history. That God is uptight. That God is worried about the wrong things. It's a starting point, a common starting point for atheists, right? That the Christian God revealed in Scripture is riddled with darkness. That he rules unfairly. That he's really actually from our view, incompetent to rule the world, right? He's messing things up. He's uptight about all the wrong things. And he's the ultimate in arrogant because he wants everybody to worship him. Right? So they malign his character and they misuse his words and they shake their fists at him. But the starting point is wrong. He is light. They are in darkness. He is straight. They are bent. They're warped. They're twisted. But God is light, and there is no, there's not any, there's none at all darkness in Him. Everyone is thus demonstrably sinful, right? We're cracked and we're broken because God is none of those things. We only understand that by comparing ourselves to Him. So from this foundation, John begins to describe the three false claims that deny sin, that deny its power and its consequences. And these must have been connected in some way to the teaching of these false ideas that he's trying to refute. But it's interesting in the language as well that John puts himself in it. If we claim, John doesn't say if they claimed, he says if we claim. Because he understands that these are natural human responses to the reality of sin in the world and the way people want to avoid it. Uh, Verse 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. The idea of fellowship, of course, began in verse 3. We talked about it a bit last week. Fellowship means to share with someone in something. So it's a broad concept used in various ways to describe working together, getting along, partnering in a goal, sharing provisions for the needs of others. The particular idea in the context of the church in this letter, I think, is is described as the living bond in which the Christian stands. The living bond in which the Christian stands. That's fellowship. So these false teachers are claiming that in some way, walking in darkness is not incompatible with following God. In other words, they're denying that sin breaks fellowship with God. Denying that sin is a big deal to God or that it affects our relationship with Him in any way. And we hear it in our day maybe like this. Well, why can't God just forgive anyone? I mean, right? It's his job to forgive sins, right? It seems silly to people that if God can do anything, why can't he just get over this idea of sin and wipe the slate clean by his fiat power, right? It seems silly to people that God gets all upset about sin and silly to them that Christians get upset about sin too. In reality, that kind of attitude is, is, is kind of like saying things like this. So what? If someone came into your house and smashed up your stuff, they took everything that they wanted, that you owned, they drove off with your car after senselessly beating you up and doing whatever they wanted with everything that was yours. So what? Right? I mean, so what if someone took your identity and did all kinds of terrible things and you ended up with a life sentence in prison because of it? 
I mean, so what, right? So what if, the, if we, um, you know, someone accidentally bombed a village during a wedding in thinking instead that it was a gathering of enemy insurgents? I mean, so what, right? If your kids that you loved and you raised and you sacrificed for their whole lives, they walk away from you and they curse you and they never speak to you again. I mean, what are you so upset about? Right? I mean, life happens, right? Come on, get over it. People don't believe that sin is an affront to God. That sin is first and foremost an expression of rebellion against Him. And if we don't recognize that sin is an affront to God, that He knows and He feels the deep disturbance in everything good in His perfect creation that this crack in absolutely everything has made, if we don't recognize that sin is an affront to God, then we don't think it's a big deal. But God knows and God feels how broken our world is because Jesus lived it and he took it upon himself. All of it. So these false teachers are over here saying, I'm really happy over here walking in darkness, doing whatever I can think of to myself and the world and harm to others and whatever, and and I'm okay with God too. This is a blatant lie. It's not living by the truth, John says. We can't pretend that darkness and light are compatible just because it's, inconven- because it's convenient to us, because that's the way we want to live. Right? Hear these words from the Gospel of John, chapter 3. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light. And will not come into the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light. And that's what John begins to describe here in verse 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, purifies us from all sin. Instead of denying that sin breaks our fellowship with God, the truth is that walking in the light means that we can be purified by the blood of Jesus and we can have fellowship with one another. But this is hard, right? As John 3 told us, we shirk back from the light because in some deep down kinds of ways we love the darkness because our deeds are evil and we don't want them exposed. Sin has more power when it's hidden. And if you believe the statistics about the church in America today, there's a lot of sin that we desperately want to keep hidden. Crisis-level amounts of sin. If you read the statistics. Addictions to substances and pornography and the American dream. Hatred of neighbor, of brother and sister in the church, of spouse, of ourselves. Unforgiveness, bitterness, envy, and strife. Church plants, church splits that we call church plants, right? We could go on and on and on. We want to keep things in the dark. But the solution is to walk with God in the light. The solution to fellowship with each other. Solution to the forgiveness of sins. The second false claim here is denying that sin actually makes 
a person guilty in verse 8. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The NIV says if we claim to be without sin, literally it's if we claim to have no sin, we deceive ourselves. The idea of having sin in John's gospel actually means to be guilty of sin. So, and there are a number of references in a bulletin from the Gospel of John that describe this, that use this language and describe this understanding of how what he's talking about is denying that sin makes us guilty, denying that we, that we have guilt because of it. The claim is that we're not really morally responsible. The idea is that sin doesn't taint us or stain us. You know, so it's connected to the first claim, but it's a little bit of a shade different. It's the idea that, that sin doesn't make me guilty, and thus it doesn't really have any significant consequences. But of course, consequences are a part of life. I was coming out of the church driveway here a few months ago. In the middle of the day, I was getting ready to make a right onto Birdsville Road. You know, there's no stop sign, but I was stopping anyway because I was changing the music or, or, or looking at my phone or something. And I looked to the left when I pulled up, and I didn't see any cars. And so I started to kind of ease out a bit before I had kind of completely looked up again. And right in front of me was a, bi- a guy on a bicycle. And I don't know where he came from. And, I mean, I, I, I felt so relieved that I didn't just pull out. I mean, it was, you know, I had looked that way. I hadn't seen any cars. I don't know where he came from, but I very easily could have hit him. And I was a bit kind of shaken up by it because I began to think about what would have been the consequences in my life of being guilty of hitting this guy with my car who was riding by on a bike. What are all the different ways that my life could take in of a completely different turn at that moment if I had been guilty of, of hitting him and hurting him or killing him? I mean, you just start to spin out the consequences, right, in a whole host of anxiety-inducing ways. And, of course, I'm so grateful that, that the Lord spared me and him of that whole experience. And, and, you know, and we all can think about things like, you know, parallel stories in our life, but it gets us thinking about the consequences and about the domino effect of life, how small sins can spin out big consequences, how guilt goes part and parcel with sin. Guilt today in our culture is a bad word, isn't it? Guilt is the thing that we should try to explain away or spend a lot of time and money with a counselor who can tell us that we're really okay. Right? That's what, that's, for, for our culture, that's what guilt is. Guilt is the thing we've got to get rid of. It's, it's, you know, the idea is, in our culture, that all guilt is false guilt. And, of course, there is false guilt that we shouldn't feel, especially as believers who know the forgiveness that we have in Christ. But our culture, you know, thinks this idea that, that guilt is wrong. Guilt is the problem. Guilt makes you crazy. Rather than seeing that there's a reality behind the feeling of guilt that's a warning that says, seek a Savior, that says, change your direction, You feel guilty for a reason. Guilt isn't the problem. Guilt is a symptom. Guilt is showing the problem, right? And so these false teachers are saying, no, 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 we got to get rid of guilt. Guilt isn't a part of it. Guilt doesn't make us 
Uh, and sin doesn't make us guilty. John, again, refutes the heresy in verse 9. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. The solution to the guilt and consequences of sin, to this fact that we have sin, is to confess our sins. Literally in the Greek, confess means to say the same, to agree. In the context, it's making clear that confession is agreeing with God about the sinfulness of our sin and that it makes us guilty before Him. And confession, again, kind of like walking in the light, like confession seems like that might be kind of an easy thing to do. Like all I have to do is admit that I was wrong and I can be let off the hook, I can be forgiven. You know, there's one sense in which it seems relatively easy, like almost too easy, until you actually have to do it, right? Until you actually get to the heart of it and go to the depth of it. And sometimes I think that we might, also, we might almost rather die than apologize for the deep meanness or selfishness or unkindness of our actions and our motives, We might just rather curl up and die than have to be confronted face to face with that and have to agree with God about what this is. And especially if we have to go tell it to someone and admit it to someone and ask for their forgiveness. Sometimes we might rather die than let what we have built and nurtured and hidden and kept hidden be exposed. The amazingly good news here in this verse, if we, look, if we look at it, is that our forgiveness isn't based on the completeness or the perfection of our confession. The ground on which our forgiveness comes to us is what? It's the faithfulness and the justice of God, who is light and there's no darkness in Him. God's just character works for us on this side of His wrath. Because he can't not forgive us. Because none who come to Jesus and admit their sin are ever turned away. There's no prayer of confession that God doesn't hear. And that God doesn't respond to. The third claim of our teachers is in uh, verse 10. If we claim we have not sinned, We make him out to be a liar, and his word has no place in our lives. Again, connected to the others, but there's a bit of a different nuance here, is the claim to have not sinned. Probably, their teaching was something along the lines of this idea that once they were enlightened, once they had been anointed into this particular religious sect, you know, once they they had uh, kind of gotten in, you know, the Gnostic teaching and stuff, you know, this special knowledge, once they were in then they could totally avoid or even be incapable of sinning. Some of the early religions taught that sort of thing. So it's not claiming to be perfect and sinless for all of life. It's claiming that once you're in this special religious group, then you can't sin anymore. Which is really what, right? It's redefining the word so that they were sinless. I read an essay a few years back, I think it was in Christianity Today, that said, the title of it was, God be merciful to me, a miscalculator. (laughs) The idea, of course, is to rework things such the label sin doesn't really apply. 
You can do this in a lot of different ways. Um, the Pharisees had their own legalistic religious way to define the law in which they could keep it. The popular approach in our day is to make the word sin mean something like mistake, miscalculation, you know, which really means nothing at all that makes us guilty and gets to the heart of it. When I was living in Hungary, we would talk with students a lot about the gospel, and they rarely knew the English word sin. It wasn't obviously a common vocabulary word, I guess, for them to learn in school. They weren't picking up the word in the Hollywood movies that they were watching or the you know, American and English language music that they were listening to. I'm sure they were seeing plenty of sin, but not having it defined for them, right? Not using the word. The Hungarian word for sin is also the word for crime. So on Hungarian money, there's this little sentence about how it's a sin to copy the money. Or it's a crime to copy it. So linguistically, in their, in their culture, there's this connection with the word itself that connects crime, punishment, guilt with the word sin. That you see the whole picture of it and the biblical picture of it by using that word. Our word sin is, you know, just limited, as I said, to church, the, the church world. But there's, it, it helps, I think, to understand what sin means if you think of it as crime, you know, as something, as breaking the law. How does John speak then to the third false claim? The first two action points, to walk in the light and to confess our sins, are, are, you know, connected to what we do. But even behind our ability to do those things is the work of God who's already done so much on our behalf. The bad news is bad. The good news is even greater. In each case, in this progression, with each claim, the bad news of sin, the good news even greater. So it is here in verse 1. My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Obviously, John doesn't want to explain this in a way that gives license to sin. His point is to restrain sin. And to say, you know, how bad it is that they're wrong in minimizing it. But having a right view of sin, of course, means that every human will fall into it. And so by contrast of denying that we've sinned, John teaches us the really, really good news that when we sin, there is already one who speaks for us. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So even when we're guilty, we have an advocate. That's what the word means. Someone who speaks in your defense. Someone who is your helper. It's the same word that's used in, uh, to, that Jesus used to describe the work of the Holy Spirit in John 14 to 16. This idea of, of the paraclete, the helper, the one who comes alongside, the advocate. So this is the role of Jesus before the Father for us. Advocating for our behalf. Advocating for us on our behalf. He is the atoning sacrifice. Some Bibles, perhaps your translation reads propitiation, which is the church language word worse than sin, uh, meaning to appease an angry deity. In the pagan religions of the day, propitiation was like bribing the gods to give them gifts and sacrifices so that they won't be mad at you. You remove their wrath by giving them something they want. 
John doesn't mean it, of course, in that way. He uses it with a sense of irony or a twist here to describe the character of Christian propitiation. John Stott said it this way, Christian propitiation is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. The appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. His wrath is averted not by any external gift, but by his own self-giving to die the death of sinners. This is still Stott here. This means he has himself contrived by which to turn his own wrath away. That God made up the plan to turn his own wrath away. And thus, the sins of the world can be taken away. What does all this mean for us today? The action points jump right out at the text, jump right out to us from the text, don't they? Walk in the light. Continue to be where God is and follow him in what is right. Recognize God's purity and holiness and seek that for yourself. Don't give in to this idea that sin is kind of like chocolate that it's something that's a tiny bit worth enjoying, even if you don't want to admit it. Sin costs you. It hurts you. It hurts your fellowship with God. It hurts your fellowship with others, as these verses teach us. Secondly, confess our sins to God and to others. Confession is to be an ever-present hallmark of the church, admitting that we were wrong, which is sometimes the hardest thing to do, isn't it? Asking others for forgiveness bringing our sin into the light are all expressions of this kind of confession. There certainly is unconfessed sin in our midst, harbored against one another within the body, hidden from what everybody else but God can see. It's hurting you. It's hurting us. And what's somewhat scary is this idea that if we look at the history of the revivals of the church, the outpourings and movements of God's Spirit in His church, there's usually this accompanying, it's accompanied by deep and public confession of sin. You think of that in the First Great Awakening in New England where people brought their stuff out and their, their sinful stuff and they burned it. They admitted that they had it in their house and they brought it out and burned it and said, I'm getting rid of it. There was something very public about their confession of sin because nothing weakens sin's power more than exposing it and taking it to the cross. And then on the flip side of that, you rejoice anew in how much you've been forgiven. The other side of the coin is nothing makes our fight against sin harder than trying to fight on our own and keeping it in the darkness. And the church should be a safe place for us to confess to one another so that sin's power can be broken in our lives. The third point here, of course, it brings us to this calling to trust in our advocate, that Jesus came for sinners, that sin isn't the end of the story for all who believe. But we have one who pleads on our behalf, who promises these things. He promises complete forgiveness. He promises purification from all unrighteousness. So trust him today. Ask him again to forgive you. Know that he has forgiven you completely. That he's turned his wrath away by giving himself 
because of his love. Amen. Please pray with me. Father, we are thankful this morning for this is good news indeed for us, that you have arranged the world in which we can be forgiven, in which this crack that is in everything is being mended in us. We look for that, forward to that day of complete restoration and ask that you would bring the foretaste of it and the first fruits of it to us and to our church. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. In response to the preaching of the word, let us now stand together and turn in our hymnals to hymn number 580 and sing, Lead On, O King Eternal.